All right, so this is episode two for my sports review podcast. Um, I will say that all of these podcasts come from the Sports Medicine Study Guide and Review for Boards from Mark Harris and Jonathan Finna. It is not my original information or anything like that, just a way to help me study on the drive. So part two here is for exercise physiology. This may be a bit of a dry um, chapter to listen to on the road, but hopefully we can at least remember some things here without the images and algorithms and whatnot. So part one uh, talks about muscles. So A, what are muscle cells? So muscle cells are also known as myofibers or muscle fibers. They are long, cylindrical, multinucleated cells. The muscle cell membrane is also known as the sarcolemma. So that wraps around each specific muscle cell. The muscle cell cytoplasm is also called the sarcoplasm. And then a bundled group of muscle cells is called a fascicle. So you got the muscle cells or myofibers, muscle fibers that are long cylindrical. They have a muscle cell membrane, sarcolemma, and cytoplasm, sarcoplasm, and then bundles of them are called fascicles. So part B, the connective tissue. So there's the endomesium, which surrounds each muscle cell, and sarcolemma is continuous with the endomesium. Um, farther down the chain from the endomesium is the perimesium, which surrounds each fascicle. So endomesium is just for a muscle cell, perimesium for a fascicle, and then epimesium surrounds the entire muscle. So tendons connect muscle to bone periosteum. So it's always important to remember strain um, has to do with tendon issues because T and strain for tendons. Endomesium, perimesium, and epimesium all connect to the tendon. And then D, innervation. Each muscle cell is innervated by a single motor nerve. But a single nerve can innervate multiple muscle cells. So one nerve can do multiple muscle cells, but a muscle cell can only be done by one nerve. The motor unit is a single motor nerve and all of the cells it innervates. That is what is one motor unit. All the muscle cells in a motor unit contract when they are stimulated by their motor nerve. So once the nerve fires, all those muscle cells will activate. Um, then E, the myofibrils. Myofibrils is the contractile apparatus of muscles. Myofibrils are composed of the myofilaments myosin, which is the thick filament, and actin, which is the thin filament. So remember, myosin, actin, thick, thin. Myosin is the one that has a globular head, which can form cross bridges with the actin, which is the thin. Actin has two a two-stranded double helix structure, and each actin is surrounded by three myosins. So one little actin surrounded by three separate myosins. Each myosin is then surrounded by six little actins, so it forms that cross-bridging structure. Um, within the myofibrils, there's the sarcomere, which a sarcomere is the smallest contractile unit in skeletal muscle. So remember kind of the Z-lines and all that kind of stuff. So the Z-line is the end of the sarcomere. And that is where actin attaches to the Z-line. So you got the Z-line, 
thin little actin attaching to the Z line. The M line is in the center of the sarcomere, and that's, I think, M from myosin attaches to the M line. And then the A band is where it's dark. And that contains myosin and actin overlapping each other. That's why it's darker. The I band is light because it contains only actin, which is thin. And the H zone is in the middle of the A band. Um, <clears throat> and it contains only myosin. So think of H right in the dead center, A just a bit past that, and then I just kind of where the Z lines are because it's lighter. The H zone and the I band get smaller with muscle contraction. So H zone and I band both get smaller, but the A band will always stay the same. So muscle contraction. So at rest, there's minimal calcium in the sarcoplasm. Calcium kind of helps to fire muscles. So think at rest, minimal calcium. There's few myosin heads bound to actin. And troponin and tropomyosin cover the actin-binding sites of the myosin head. So since the troponin and tropomyosin cover the actin-binding sites, they can't really fire, so that's at rest. During muscle contraction, though, there's some changes. So acetylcholine is released from the motor neuron and binds to receptors on the muscle cell membrane. So it goes down from the nerve to the um, receptors on the muscle cell. Once that is sent, the sarcolemma depolarizes which means calcium is released. Depolarization transmitted rapidly into the interior of the muscle cell via the transverse tubules. Intracellular calcium is released from the SR, the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And then with that influx of calcium, calcium goes over, it binds to the troponin, which after binding to troponin, it conformationally changes the tropomyosin and the myosin binding sites on the actin filament are opened. Myosin then forms, the head forms a cross bridge with the actin filament, flexes and dissociates from the actin. Myosin head recocks to its original position prior to beginning the process again. So kind of this repetitive process, so two ATPs, adenosine triphosphate, so two ATPs are converted into ADP for a muscle contraction. It loses one of those phosphates. So they need one to form the cross bridge with actin and flex the head, and then one to break off again and recock it. That's why there's two, one for each. So that's kind of the general process for a muscle contraction. There's different types of muscle fiber types, if we remember from physiology. So type 1 is the slow twitch, and those are more oxidative. And type 2 is generally the fast twitch, or glycolytic. So think type 1, slow twitch, more for endurance type stuff, oxidative. You need more oxygen for that kind of stuff. Whereas type 2 fast twitch, glycolytic, think of heavy bursts and explosiveness. Beneath type 2, there are two different subtypes. So type 2A, which is more fast-twitch oxidative glycolytic, a little bit of a combination, and type 2X, which is fast-twitch glycolytic. So going over this table here in the chart, table 3.1, talks about characteristics of muscle fiber types. So with contraction speed, type 1 is going to be slower, and type 2A and 2X are going to be fast. With force production, um, type 1 is 
going to be lower as well. Um, <clears throat> and type 2a is going to be intermediate and 2x is high since type 2a is kind of a mix. Endurance is going to be high for type 1, intermediate for type 2a, and low for 2x. For aerobic enzymes, it's going to be high for type 1, middle for type 2a, and low for 2x. Anaerobic enzymes are going to be low for type 1, high for type 2a, and high for 2x. Fatigability is going to be lower in the type 1, where it's going to be progressively higher for type 2. Capillary density is going to be higher for type 1, intermediate for 2a, and um, low for 2x. Fiber size is small for type 1, and then progressively larger for 2. Mitochondria is going to be much higher for type 1, makes sense for the endurance capacity. ATPase activity is going to be lower for type 1 and higher for type 2. Myoglobin is going to be higher for type 1 and lower for type 2, and color is going to be red for type 1 and type 2A, whereas type 2X, the anaerobic is going to be more of a white color. So with recruitment, with muscle contraction and everything, there's a Henneman size principle. So the smaller, lower threshold motor neurons innervate type 1 muscle fibers and are recruited first, whereas type 2 fibers are recruited if more force is required. So you just need the easier ones, type 1, the endurance type stuff, to, to do things in lower threshold. Uh, exception, though, is for activities of high velocity, like plyometrics, that explosiveness. Type 2 fibers are recruited first in those. So moving on to talk about our energy systems. So there are three main energy systems. The first is ATP phosphocreatine. So phosphocreatine donates its phosphate to regenerate ATP from ADP in muscle. So it gives that extra phosphate to make ATP. It's catalyzed by creatine kinase, the enzyme, and it's the main energy source for maximal exercise lasting up to 30 seconds. Most of the phosphocreatine can be regenerated after resting just for three minutes. The second energy system is anaerobic or glycolytic. This is also known in figure 3.2 as glycolysis. So it's metabolism of glucose to pyruvate via glycolysis. No oxygen is required for glycolysis. It's just glucose broken down to pyruvate. This whole process makes 2 ATP if you're beginning with glucose or 3 ATP if you're beginning with glycogen. In the presence of oxygen, the end product of glycolysis or pyruvate is metabolized via the aerobic energy system. When pyruvate is created faster than it can be metabolized, it is reversibly converted into lactate. So think about when it's like exercising too much, and it's doing faster and faster and faster, you can get lactate, and pyruvate into lactate conversion facilitated by a low oxygen environment, which also fits. Glycolysis is the primary energy source for exercising lasting one to three minutes. And the rate-limiting step in this is catalyzed by the enzyme phosphofructokinase. That's the big one to remember. For aerobic, this is the third energy system for aerobic or oxidative state. It occurs in the mitochondria via oxidative phosphorylate, phosphorylation, which has two parts. So part one is the Krebs cycle where the byproduct is CO2, and part two is the electron transport 
chain, which its byproduct is H2O. In the presence of oxygen, pyruvate is converted into acetyl coenzyme A, which is metabolized through the Krebs cycle and the ETS, to produce 36 ATPs per glucose molecule. Therefore, the net ATP produced from glycolysis and oxidative phosphorylation is 38 total, or 39 if you start with glycogen instead of glucose. Aerobic metabolism is the primary energy source for exercise lasting more than three minutes. So this is going to be more for your endurance type stuff. Fat is also metabolized in the mitochondria though. Triglycerides are broken down into glycerol and three fatty acids by lipolysis. Free fatty acids enter the mitochondria and are converted into acetyl coenzyme A through beta oxidation. Acetyl coenzyme A metabolized by the Krebs cycle and ETS. The net ATP produced from free fatty acid metabolism is far greater than for glucose. So it's like 129 ATP for one palmitic acid molecule. So now let's move to talking about adaptations to exercise. Aerobic exercise results in an increase in muscular capillary density, size and number of mitochondria, oxidative enzymes, fatty acid transport across the sarcolemma to get more energy, fat metabolism, and arterial oxygen extraction, which is increased arterial venous oxygen concentration difference. Two, owing to the increase in fat utilization, there is a relative sparing of glycogen and glucose metabolism, which results in a reduction in lactate production. There's no change in muscle cell lactate buffering capacity. Pyruvate is metabolized faster due to the increase in oxidative enzymes. And historically, studies have suggested that many type 2X fibers will convert to type 2A fibers after approximately two weeks of aerobic exercise training. Newer techniques defining muscle to fiber type have emerged, suggesting this may not occur. It's a very controversial topic at the present time. Research is ongoing. So think of running a bunch, getting slower with sprinting. Not necessarily the case as far as conversion of the fiber types. So anaerobic exercise results in an increase in intramuscular anaerobic enzymes such as phosphofructokinase, phosphorylase, and lactate dehydrogenase. So think of the ones that will produce or go through glycolysis more than the ETS or mitochondria. Um, there's a moderate increase still in oxidative enzymes and it improves muscle cell lactate buffering capacity. And then for resistance exercises, so that causes muscle cell hypertrophy, increased muscle cell size. It's due to an increased number of sarcomeres primarily, and it occurs after about six to eight weeks of training. It's predominantly in type 2 muscle cells. Strength gains that occur prior to six weeks are due to neural factors, including improved motor unit recruitment and repression of self-protection reflexes. There's no substantial evidence supporting hyperplasia, which is an increased number of muscle cells in humans due to resistance exercise, more just the size. Fiber type conversion from 2X to 2A begins after a few weeks, also controversial. Resistance exercises, um, sorry, 
can lead to improved aerobic exercises as evidenced by the improved running economy of long-distance runners following maximal squat strength training three times weekly for eight weeks. Uh, aerobic exercise does not appear to enhance the strength benefits of resistance training alone. Resistance training increases what? So the bone mineral density, thinking of our osteoporotic patients, ligament and tendon strength and collagen content, and anaerobic energy stores. So that actually goes up too. Glycogen, phosphocreatine, ATP. Uh, capillary and mitochondrial density decrease due to a larger degree of muscle hypertrophy compared to increase in capillarization. High volume, low load resistance exercises increase, so thinking of toning type exercises, increases creatine phosphokinase, myokinase, and phosphofructokinase. Low volume, high load resistance exercises cause a decrease in creatine phosphokinase and no change in myokinase or phosphofructokinase. Lactate dehydrogenase concentrations do not change with either high volume, low load, or low volume, high load resistance exercises. So moving on to talk about flexibility. So there's three main stretching techniques. First is static. So the muscle is held in the stretch position for a sustained period of time, usually 30 seconds. Very easy to perform, minimal activation of the muscle spindles, and may lead to performance decrement when performed prior to events requiring major strength or power components. So if you're going to do something like that, don't do the static stretching. There's ballistic stretching, which is a bouncing motion is utilized to stretch the muscle. It activates muscle spindles, causing a reflex contraction of the muscle being stretched. And it is as effective as static stretching, but more painful and has higher potential for injury. And there's C, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, or PNF. Muscle contraction, either the agonist or antagonist, is used to facilitate the stretch through reflexes. For example, contracting the quads while stretching the hamstring. So you can kind of think of almost like muscle energy in that matter. So as far as the effectiveness of stretching techniques, PNF is much greater than static, which is about equal to ballistic. There's factors that influence flexibility. So joint range of motion is limited by the joint's bony anatomy as well as by the muscles, fascia, tendons, and ligaments that cross the joint. Muscle elasticity is reduced with age due to fibrocartilaginous replacement of degenerated muscles, increased adhesions, and calcium deposits. Females are more flexible than males, primarily due to pelvic structure and hormonal differences. So think of relaxin, specifically with pregnant people. And physically active people tend to be more flexible than their sedentary counterparts. Increased flexibility from stretching due to a acute the musculotendinous viscoelastic properties and chronic is increased number of sarcomeres and stretching pain tolerance. So moving on to talk about lactate kinetics. At rest and during low intensity exercise, blood lactate levels are low and remain relatively constant. As intensity increases, there comes a point above which lactate begins to accumulate. If exercise intensity continues to increase, a shift takes place where anaerobic metabolism becomes a predominant energy source rather than aerobic metabolism. This point is called the lactate or anaerobic threshold and usually occurs at 4 millimoles per liter of blood lactate. 
So if that intensity increases, it shifts where anaerobic is predominant energy source than aerobic. In untrained individuals, the lactate threshold may reside at 50 to 60% of their maximum oxygen uptake, while trained may be closer to 80 to 90%. The lactate threshold is trainable, and lactate is an energy substrate for glycolysis. It does not appear to cause the muscle burn associated with exercise. So moving on, next section, cardiovascular response to exercise. So as exercise intensity increases, there's a linear increase in heart rate. Stroke volume increases initially, but then it plateaus. <clears throat> Early increases in cardiac output associated with exercise due to a combination of increased heart rate and stroke volume. So it makes sense because cardiac output is a heart rate times stroke volume whereas the increased cardiac output associated with higher intensity exercise is nearly completely due to an increase in heart rate. There's a linear relationship with cardiac output and maximal oxygen consumption. Therefore, cardiac output is an important determinant of aerobic exercise capacity. During a prolonged aerobic exercise session, there's a gradual increase in heart rate and decrease in stroke volume at a given workload. This is referred to as cardiac drift and is likely due to a greater percentage of the blood being diverted to the skin for heat dissipation and reduction of blood volume due to sweating. Hmm. During aerobic exercise, the systolic blood pressure increases proportional to exercise intensity with little effect on the diastolic. During resistance exercise, there can be extreme increases in both SBP and DBP, greater than 400 over 30 millimeters per mercury, especially in the setting of a Valsalva. Long-term aerobic exercise training causes, one, increased, these are all things that increase, stroke volume at rest and during maximal exercise, left ventricular wall thickness, internal diameter and mass of cardiac size, increased blood volume, which is initially due to increased plasma volume, likely due to increased ADH and aldosterone levels, Later, due to increases in both plasma volume and red blood cell number, so think of the hematocrit going up, EPO release from the kidneys acting on bone marrow progenitor cells. And since the increase in blood volume is greater than the increase in red blood cell volume, there's a net reduction in the hematocrit referred to as a, quote, pseudoanemia. So that's where hematocrit can actually be lower, uh, but false. So long-term aerobic exercise training causes decreased resting and submaximal exercise heart rate and decreased SBP and DBP, blood pressure basically. Long-term resistance training causes increased left ventricular wall thickness and mass, so similarly. There's no change in the internal left ventricular diameter, however. Next section talks about respiratory response to exercise. Initial rapid increase in ventilation followed by a brief plateau and another gradual rise until a steady state is reached. During submaximal exercise, increased ventilation has a linear relationship with oxygen uptake. The initial increase in ventilation due to increase in tidal volume. With increased exercise intensity, breathing rate becomes the predominant mechanism for increased ventilation. Now let's talk about the endocrine response to exercise. So first with testosterone. 
testosterone temporarily increases after resistance exercise. And this increase is enhanced by shorter rest periods, so one minute rather than three minutes, for example. Um, less intensity but higher volume, 10 rep max rather than 5 rep max. And exercise lasting longer than 20 minutes. Um, testosterone temporarily increases after anaerobic exercise. And uh, testosterone is lower than normal resting testosterone levels in endurance athletes. So, per B, growth hormone. This increases after resistance exercise. The increase is enhanced by shorter rest periods, less intensity, but higher volume as well. And exercise lasting longer than 20 minutes. So, the exact same as testosterone. And it increases after aerobic exercise also. C, insulin. Insulin decreases during exercise, which is why diabetics who take insulin with exercise should actually decrease the amount that they take. Insulin sensitivity is increased by exercise. D, cortisol. Cortisol is increased after resistance training and prolonged aerobic exercise above 70% of maximal oxygen uptake. It's a stress hormone, so it should increase during stress. E, aldosterone and ADH. The increase after exercise due to a decreased plasma volume and increased plasma osmolarity. So significant water and sodium losses with sweating. To help compensate the increase, restores total body water and electrolyte levels in the hours and days after acute exercise. Moving on, immune system response to exercise. A low to moderate intensity exercise reduces infections in previously sedentary people, <clears throat> but has no effect on mucosal immunoglobulin A concentrations or IgA. High-intensity prolonged exercise reduces mucosal IgA concentrations, leukocyte counts, and natural killer cell numbers for 3 to 72 hours after exercise, resulting in altered immunity. And it may increase upper respiratory infections in endurance athletes. Part 9. Delayed Onset Muscle Soreness, or DOMS. This occurs following high-force, unaccustomed, eccentric, and occasionally isometric in extended position muscle contractions. The reason for eccentric specificity of DOMS is unknown, but the following events occur following eccentric exercise. <coughs> There's a disruption of the sarcomere Z-lines called Z-line streaming. Sarcolemma is damaged, calcium is released within the cell, and calcium-dependent proteolytic enzymes degrade the damaged sarcomere Z-lines. Circulating neutrophil concentrations increase within a few hours of the injury, and CK uh, leaks from the muscle cell into the circulating plasma and attracts monocytes to the area within 6-12 hours of the injury. Monocytes then transform into macrophages, then phagocytes, um, to phagocytose-damaged structures. And then these macrophages release prostaglandin, PGE2, and type 3 and type 4 nerve endings are sensitized. Mast cells are attacked or are attracted to the area and release histamine, causing tissue edema, hyperthermia, further sensitization, mechanical compression of nociceptors, so pain receptors. And then monocyte and macrophage concentrations peak about 48 hours after the injury, and oxygen-free radicals are also produced throughout this process, causing secondary tissue damage. So all this is kind of the physiology for why people get DOMS. 
pain typically starts about 6 to 12 hours after exercise, peaks 2 to 3 days after exercise, resolves 5 to 7 days after exercise is done. Symptoms are treated with analgesics like NSAIDs, Tylenol, massage, E-STEM, acupuncture, cryotherapy, heat, and rest. Most effective prevention measure for DOMS is the, quote, repeated bout effect. A single bout of eccentric exercise prevents the development of DOMS from the same exercise for approximately six weeks. Stretching before exercise has not been shown to decrease DOMS. Next part, children. Due to variable maturation rates, classified children by their biological rather than chronological age. Bio-age can be determined by skeletal age, sexual maturation, or physical maturity, such as their tanner stages. Muscle mass increases during maturation with 25% of a baby's birth weight attributable to muscle versus 40% of an adult's weight. Increase in muscle mass is due to hypertrophy, again, not hyperplasia. Pre-puberty strength and muscle mass is similar between males and females. Males have a larger increase in muscle mass than females during puberty due to higher testosterone levels and larger increases in male muscle mass mirrored by larger increases in strength. Females have increased estrogen levels during puberty, which causes fat deposition, secondary sex characteristic development, and widening of the hips. For the elderly, elderly have a decrease in muscle strength, mass, due to loss of muscle fibers, um, such as sarcopenia, and preferential loss of type 2 muscle fibers, which is a higher percentage of type 1, also decrease in muscle function. Decrease in muscle mass predisposes elderly to osteoarthritis of the knee, falls, and osteoporotic fractures. Endurance is decreased in elderly due to decreased muscle mass, capillary blood flow, oxygen uptake, and nutritional status. And is decreased due to increased presence of chronic diseases such as COPD, CAD, and CHF. Elderly balance is decreased due to inactivity and deconditioning, which is why the best thing you can do is in a PT or strengthening program. Balance is also decreased due to chronic diseases that affect balance, like PVD, diabetes, Parkinson's, peripheral neuropathy, uh, poor nutrition, alcoholism, and medications. Flexibility is decreased due to immobilization and or a lack of regular joint movement through full range of motion. And then there's multiple physiologic changes seen with aging, as in Table 3.3. So for the cardiovascular system, they have a decreased maximum heart rate, blood vessel compliance, Resting stroke volume, decreased max cardiac output. Um, <clears throat> for respiratory, they have an increased residual volume and decreased vital capacity. For metabolism, they have a decreased maximal oxygen uptake. They have decreased nerve conduction velocity and proprioception for neurologic and for MSK. They have bone loss from 35 to 55 years old. Um, and then greater when greater than 55, decreased muscle strength and flexibility. Progressive resistance exercises for the elderly increase strength, endurance, submaximal aerobic capacity, and their bone mineral density. Um, it decreases their blood pressure, their fall risk, osteoarthritic knee pain, and disability. Aerobic exercise improves their efficiency. Uh, endurance, oxygen uptake, and reaction to multiple chronic diseases. And it reduces their resting heart rate and disability and pain. Balance training reduces falls and osteoporotic fractures. And flexibility training improves their joint range of motion and flexibility.
Next section, patients with chronic disease. Regular exercise is a beneficial adjunctive treatment of chronic diseases, such as 1. Hypertension. So 50% greater risk of developing hypertension in sedentary than active people. That's regardless of weight. In people with hypertension, so BP 140 over 90, regular exercise produces resting SPP by, appro by approximately 7.4 millimeters mercury and diastolic by 5.8. Moderate intensity aerobic exercise is as effective as high intensity aerobic exercise at reducing blood pressure. And some reductions in blood pressure from resistance training are present. Regular resistance training also blunts the acute elevations in blood pressure that occur in untrained individuals who perform resistance exercises. There are small reductions in blood pressure that result in significant reductions in stroke risk and CAD. And there's a decreased blood pressure probably due to reduction in sympathetic tone. So regular exercise is also beneficial for PVD, OA, claudication, COPD, dementia, pain, CHF, syncope, CVA, DVTs, back pain, constipation. As we know, it's helpful for diabetes. Aerobic and resistance exercise decreases insulin resistance and therefore increases its sensitivity. It increases GLUT4 production, thus improving glucose transport in type 2 diabetes. Aerobic exercise is performed for 30 to 60 minutes, three to four times a week at 50 to 80% of VO2 max reduces A1Cs by 10% to 20% in type 2 diabetics. Circuit type resistance training or high intensity progressive resistance training performed twice weekly for three months decreased A1Cs 8.2 to 8.8% in type 2 diabetics. High exercise intensity is more predictive of improved glycemic control than high exercise volume. So intensity is more important than volume for them. Regular physical activity reduces mortality in athletes with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Next disorder is dyslipidemia. Triglycerides are reduced 18 to 24 hours after an acute bout of high-intensity aerobic exercise. There's a shorter duration and lower-intensity blunts this response. Total cholesterol and LDL have small reductions following acute exercise. HDL levels frequently increase after an acute bout of exercise. Consistent aerobic exercise for 3 to 12 months can reduce triglyceride levels by 10 to 20%. Reductions in LDL are approximately 5% following greater than or equal to 12 weeks of aerobic exercise. Total cholesterol does not appear to decrease with regular exercise. And regular exercise can increase HDL levels by 4 to 25%. So depression. Aerobic and resistance training decreases depressive symptoms in men and women. It appears to be as effective as psychotherapy for treating depression. ACSM's recommendation for exercise and the treatment of depression are 20 to 60 minutes of aerobic exercise three to five days per week. As effective as an SSRI. For osteoporosis, physically active youth have higher peak BMDs than their sedentary counterparts. The ACSM's position stand on exercise and the treatment of osteoporosis recommends weight-bearing endurance activities Monitor high intensity, 30 to 60 minutes, 3 to 5 times per week. Activities that involve jumping and resistance exercise. Um, those would be 2 to 3 times per week. The intake of calcium and vitamin D are important for bone health, but supplementation with excessive amounts has not been proven to increase BMD. And then obesity. Weight loss requires more caloric expenditure than intake, so negative balance. Diet alone for better weight loss than exercise alone. But once individuals have lost weight, they are more likely to keep it off if they do regular physical activity. 
Regular aerobic exercise modifies multiple cardiovascular disease risk factors in these individuals.